Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's World of Intelligence podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Kyle McGrawty, and by a new colleague who's just joined Jane's, Davey Gibeon, who has come in as our head of innovation. Davey, I'll, I'll get you to introduce yourself, give some indication of your background. And in this episode, we want to talk about innovation. That's the, really the theme of it. And I want to draw out some of your thoughts on how innovation happens and how maybe it's become more difficult, if it has, since the pandemic's begun and it's harder for people to get together in the same space um, and then, yeah, we'll talk about how it applies maybe to intelligence as well. well fantastic. Firstly, yeah, welcome. Thanks for joining Thank us you. and uh, great you. to hear a bit about your background. Yeah, good to be here. Um, so for the last 10 years or so, I've been sitting at the intersection of effectively Silicon Valley or emerging technologies and the defense and national security space, both at small startups. I was the co-founder of two different uh, venture-backed companies, um, OMG and Calypso AI at large companies where I was at Palantir Technologies and then also in government, both as a civilian staffer and then also as a uniformed member of the military. Really, and, and the way I kind of define my role is as the body breacher, forcing legacy organizations to change the way in which they do things using new capabilities, new methods of understanding and soliciting uh, user feedback and user problems, and then rapid development, prototyping, and expansion of, of, a, uh, of a capability set. Uh, recently joined Jane's to, to take our legacy, um, sophisticated OSINT capabilities and look a little to the future. Now, what does a 21st century or ideally even a 22nd century uh, leader in open source intelligence uh, look like from a data, artificial intelligence, and other emerging technologies perspective. But I know we're all excited to have you on board uh, because I think there's a lot that we can do in terms of innovation generally across the sector. You know, now that people are remote, not always seeing each other, we're all communicating, you know, like this online, or is it harder to, if you haven't got that culture already, to build it, and if you have got it, to actually keep it going? What I've seen as, as a failure in, in a lot of organizations in, um, in terms of dealing with this pandemic from an innovation perspective is each team is, continues to just be siloed because that's how they continue to operate. And it's easier because you know those folks, the, the line management and, and chain of command goes straight up and you're able to, to you know, push out work and, and understand um, exactly uh, where, where projects are moving. It's harder to manage a cross-functional team in a pandemic. You, you can't all be sitting together. You don't necessarily know what the developer or the DevOps person or the, you know, the intelligence analyst is working on at any given time. And it becomes harder to, to manage these projects. So I think from, and, and it doesn't help that a lot of folks really only know their, their niche within the, the organization and can't effectively just go ask questions of, you know, where are we in an engineering roadmap from a code development perspective if they're, if they're an Intel analyst. So I think it has gotten harder. I think it's gotten harder in part because people have defaulted. They've defaulted towards, towards what is most easy to manage as opposed to what is most effective for the organization. A couple of years ago, I, I remember talking to somebody um, at, um, at the MOD, a, a main building, um, who'd been there long enough to understand certainly how the MOD worked. Um, uh, he'd been in, you know, in uniform for for a long enough time. He was 
senior enough to be able to see a, a very broad set of, of organizations within the MOD. And he, he referred to something that he called the 10% rule. And, and I believe we were talking about it the other day. And, and he said, mm-hmm. you know, 90% of, a, of, of people in an organization need to know the rules, follow the rules, respect the rules. And then you need about 10% who know the rules, appreciate the rules and work around them whenever possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that management need to kind of accept that. Um, and it needs to be less than 10% because otherwise an organization is ungovernable if it's any more. But if it's any less than 10%, the organization kind of stagnates a little bit. And you've kind of got to hire for somebody with that kind of character trait and, and, mm-hmm. and trust those those individuals to to build not just an understanding of the formal structure, but a maturity to know how to work a system informally to get things done. And then the other thing he said was that um, you kind of need a, a renovation team um, because he said <laughs> innovation without renovation is, is counterproductive. You know, whether, right. you're, whether your innovation is successful or not, you alter the structure of an organization simply by going through the process of innovation. So you can have many innovative projects, but if you aren't working out how to um, infuse the rest of the organization with new processes – um, you end up fracturing the organization. You get these fault yep. lines between teams, like you say, that kind of you, you can't teach old teams new tricks. Yep. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Um, renovation or innovation without renovation is is uh, is yeah is usually failure or is typically innovation theater. And I like I like that because it's a lot more catchy than my 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 TMO phrase, you know, tech, macro, and and operations. That really speaks to the operational side, but. It's a much better turn of phrase. I'm I'm stealing that from your um, anonymous <laughs> yeah, but, MOD I, friend. I, I'm sure he won't mind. He was um, <laughs> he was one of those individuals who he he used to refer to something that he said was pressed to test, where he'd mm. ask people to go and do things outside of the normal the normal process simply mm-hmm. to prove that the process didn't work. And when yep. it failed, and that individual inevitably got wrapped over the knuckles, he'd step in and say, no, no, I told him to do that, which yep. is a luxury you can have at a two-star level. Um, yep. And then he was able to, to to illuminate a failing process and try and get change driven mm-hmm. by by pressing it to test where it breaks. Oh, I like this guy. Yeah. Was he, was he close um, to retirement at this point? <laughs> oh, yeah. no, no. It sounds he, like he was taking more risks. <laughs> No, no, he was like that. He was like that his entire career. I think most people that ever worked for him were just waiting for him to leave Uniform, set up his own company so they could all go work for him afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that, that reminds me of Carl is that and, and you'll have been in this situation, no doubt. And Davey, I'm sure you have. We all have probably at some point. Um, and this is partly why I love chatting to you guys. But we've all probably been in teams within those kinds of organizations, whether it's in the military or in government somewhere where the organization itself feels stifling or bureaucratic or resistance to change somehow there's a huge amount of inertia and yet within a team you can you can have a sort of pocket that is maybe trying to be more innovative how can those kinds of teams push change well, yeah can i can i give you guys a what may be a slightly contentious fantasy of mine so i have a fantasy that we hire such strong caliber of cross-functional folks that and have such a strong spirit of core across an organization that people almost emergently take on those 10% kind of risk-taking, fail, uh, failure possible high, um, rule-breaking programs on their own, and they succeed. The reason why it's, it's, it's potentially contentious is because 
what I'm inherently saying in that is that you need the entire team to be 10x individuals, you know, people who do their jobs at a 10x caliber to the norm. And that also inherently says that in these large organizations, there aren't a lot of those people. Um, but that is well, I guess I guess well, I guess from from a perspective of a large organization, you need some of those people, but you also need people who are you know going to keep things running, right? Who are going to be the business as usual? Yep, characters. exactly. Which ideally, I just want to automate all that away with <laughs> with, uh, with AI and machine learning. But that's a different different yeah. fantasy of mine. That, that'll be our next <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sure. Um, I'm sure that will will uh, turn some heads at Jane's and and our partner organizations. <laughs> um, but I, I I think having a a culture around that 10% is so critical. Where um, you want there to be a team of rule breakers. Now you also need those rule breakers to be high caliber individuals because if you have a rule breaker who never succeeds well then you just have some guy who goes around and breaks things um but if you have a rule broker who's succeeding you know maybe she is is you know incredibly good at the operations or incredibly good at the technology or incredibly good at just working the system whatever it is you know you want that individual to be highly highly qualified highly capable and also because i don't think everyone starts off as highly qualified and highly capable you know really in put in a position to learn and to succeed and to test things. Uh, but no, I wouldn't, I always look, I think I gravitate towards the, towards those 10% or, or in, in my roles, I, I tend to find and enjoy working with the co-conspirators as opposed <laughs> to the, you know, the pure operations side of the house. Although I understand they're important too. What I have found in the past is the, not the disconnect, but the different perspectives that end up developing between those in the, the the rebels, shall we call them, um, that look back at the organization and see it as stifling, and those individuals who who like the structure, who for whom the de- the dependability of how things are done as usual allows them to produce work to achieve um, within that structure to a very high standard. Look at the rebels and go, why are you disrupting this? So having mm-hmm. having a culture that bridges that that allows somebody within that 90% to turn around and say, you know what, I really like this project. I believe in it. I buy into it. I've seen other similar projects in the organization fail 10 years ago before these young rebels took over, um, and I want to be a part of it, and vice versa. For that 10% to be able to have a voice that's heard within the mainstream of the organization, Mm -hmm. getting that balance right is very hard. Otherwise, you end up with an organization that is pathologically resistant to authority um, <laughs> it's very difficult for leadership to manage and and that way lies chaos and, yep. and then you don't innovate at all just barely try to survive and and there are two things in there one i think that's why i prefaced it with a, an incredibly strong spirit of corp you need to all yeah. know and what you're working for and you know not everyone needs to be an officer, but you should have enough chiefs running around keeping stuff in line as 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 well, or you know your your, your quintessential master sergeants um, keep keeping yeah. books in line. Now, one of the things you mentioned though was around um, you know those young folks, and I've actually found even even though I said you know folks just because of the way education has changed, a lot of times people who've gone to university um, or come up through through high school in the 
last several years, you know, folks a, a generation below us tend to be better at being cross-functional because their classes typically involve a higher level of, of technical training. Yes, I, I found them to be better, but actually some of the most innovative people I've met in government are, um, are, are from an older generation who are so sick of the business as usual that they've decided that now they want to really disrupt. There's one, one individual who will remain nameless for now, but maybe we can get him on, on the podcast. He was a senior executive service member in the, in the Pentagon, um, has since gone on to be very successful in, in starting his own cybersecurity business, but also is a senior government advisor. And he looks like, he looks like if, um, if Santa Claus was a special forces operator, you know, big <laughs> white beard, white long hair, and built like he can just break you. I thought and Santa Claus he, wasn't special forces. I, I've always suspected that. That's uh, <laughs> how he's he's so good at um his his egress. You never really see him. True. You know, surprise. Oh, I was, yeah, I was going to say surprise, speed, and violence of action. That definitely describes <laughs> Santa Claus to a T. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. And so I, I found that that there's also you know I, I don't think that that innovation comes purely from from the younger side or even from the technically savvy side. I think it comes from, because there are those, those three areas, you know, the TMO, the tech, the macro, and the operational, especially on the macro and the operational, folks who've, who've been around, who've tried this for decades, who've seen what works and what fails, they can often be the best, um, you know, the best conduits through which to push innovations, because they, they actually, they can, they understand where the organization will fail, you know, where the, um, where it will break, and then they also understand um, what has succeeded in the past. Does does innovation require more than just saying actually, you know, we're going to try something similar again because we think it's different. It's going to be different this time. It was going to succeed this time. You know, have you seen any occasions where that's been a, a, an issue within an organization? Well, I mean, so let's take the the huge amount of artificial intelligence projects mm. over the last decade. And, you know, the, the concept of AI being developed back in you know, the 50s, and then there's been these AI peaks and valleys. And it's kind of been this, this continual hype cycle. And finally, over the last few years, compute and data have gotten to such a high fidelity that we're able to actually develop. Now, when things started being pushed out in uh, kind of around 2012, 2013, there was a huge hype and a huge amount of failure where there was a lot of false starts. And so and then in around 2016, you saw people becoming interested again. There was like this kind of three to five year lull in between where folks really weren't that interested. There's a lot of research, but not a lot of production. And then, um, you know, really in the last two, three years, now we've suddenly seen a complete shift. You know, if you just look at kind of companies that, that have focused on dual use technology, whether that's... Um, and the ones I, I always try to go to, you know, primer, recipient, data miner, um, you know, these big venture-backed darlings um, who are out there. And the reason, and they've been successful, and and a lot of the work that they're doing in government, you know, with their government clients, has been incredibly successful as well. Now, the reason for that, uh, you know, and then the Google, the Amazon, and all the rest of the giants are obviously here too. But what happened was it wasn't just that they had tried something in the past and it had failed. But it's the technology, the macro, both changed in that time period. You know, the, the tech became high fidelity, it became more scalable, it became, uh, we, we actually moved past the, you know, the fetish of the new and into, well, how does this new thing actually help us operationally? Um, and 
people looked at it and said, oh, well, this operationally didn't look, work before. And I think so. So to answer your question directly, if nothing has changed, the tech is the same, the macro situation is the same, the operational context is the same, then simply trying innovation again starts looking a lot like that definition of insanity of trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, even though that's a lot of how you train a AI model, but <laughs> all AI is apparently insane. Um, but if well, one that of those explains three factors, the bias, doesn't it? Yeah. If one of those three things has changed, then I believe that it's warranting or it, it, it warrants an additional look. And what about on the on the customer side? I mean, in terms of, you know, if an organization is launching something new or wants to try something new, how much do they need to persuade their customers that this is actually something to buy into? I mean, if the, uh, you know, if the advantages aren't obvious, if it isn't immediately clear that it's going to make them better or faster or you know, give them better accuracy of their in, into their insight, et cetera, you know, what level, what threshold does it need to reach? Or, or is there a way to get that buy-in from customers if they're, if they're not, if they're not necessarily seeing the need for it straight away? Because not all customers perceive the actual needs they should be thinking about, right? I mean, we've well, all that's, seen that. that's true. That's, um, so I think there's been been a few different kind of cycles in sales. So let's let's go a little into sales theory, where you had the the kind of early days of sales, which was, hey, we have a widget, and the widget is forty cents cheaper. You're like, oh, well, I'm going to go with that widget. Um, then you got into kind of the the 80s with you know boiler room style high pressure sales environments around you know putting and and trying to psychologically manipulate or in many ways bully someone into what you want and we found out that when you have to sell complex sales that doesn't really work and so folks moved into a more consultative model where they became socratic asking well what would you like what would you like what would you like but when it comes to innovation you're right the you the 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 product owner you know the company um jane's without osint um and and additional capabilities around that may actually be seeing something a little just over the horizon that the customer has in you. You know, they're taking your your information. So if you ask them simply, what do you want in a, in a consultative way, in a Socratic way, they'll come back and say, well, I don't know. Now, sometimes they have feature requests or capability requests or, hey, you know, Terry, I would love it if you could provide me with this specific analysis or analytic capability. But a lot of times, if you ask them about an innovation that you believe is a few years out, from really disrupting them or having an impact on their workflow, they're not going to have an opinion about it today. It's up to you to do that. And Henry Ford understood this. You know, if I had asked people what they wanted, I would have built a faster horse type situation. Um, so this isn't a new construct, but what it, it's become really apparent when it comes to specifically forward-leaning innovation. So I'm talking about things that we take on today. Um, maybe that's around a certain technology capability or a specific type of um, workflow for a client. You know, we believe that this will be a risk in the future. Or we believe that this will be a global hotspot in the future. Or we believe that access to water needs to be more thoroughly mapped and overlaid around conflict because we think that this is going to be a large uh, area of focus in the, in the future wars. Something along those lines, we need to have a point of view on it. And a good innovate and a good innovator should have a point of view on it that they're willing to interrogate and they're willing to be wrong about. But we have to start with that point of view before we can actually provide any real value. 
Otherwise, you're just asking questions it's the, and it becomes the blind leading the blind. Yeah, indeed. And you, t- you mentioned there sort of the, some of the historical context and it made me think, you know, in the historical context of innovation in the intelligence and sort of military spheres, was there a point at which it was led more by the, the government and military organizations and now and over the last couple of decades maybe we've seen actually private sector has been much more innovative in terms of technology and advanced capabilities and are we now in a phase where those things are, where it's starting to merge again where governments are starting to adopt more of the capabilities of the private sector or that the private sector has led so are we kind of seeing the pendulum almost swinging back towards government and military organizations increasing their their ability to be at the cutting edge so that's a great question we've definitely seen a pendulum swing back now I think in a lot of ways, the um, the real reason for that has been twofold. One has been governments realizing that they, you know, they missed the boat on you know, maybe two different digital transformations that have happened. So they're trying to get ahead of the third um, around, around kind of automation, um, but also new technology development. But then you've also seen a huge amount of emphasis on just from the United States military apparatus around dual use capabilities. So programs like InQtel, the Defense Innovation Unit, AFWorks, Softworks, Naval X, Army Futures Command. You know, there's this big, big focus around direct engagement with um, with the technology sector as the government and breaking down barriers to entry, providing uh, capabilities for you know, phased rollouts of product, you know, phase one, two, and three, typically in a small business innovation research program context. And other similar programs, um, the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program that I was a part of, um, the Defense Digital Service, you know, the list goes on. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it does two force functions. One, it provides capital and conduits for technology to to be better um integrated against government and national security problems and programs. And two, these areas also bring in folks who ordinarily would have looked at the at the government as a stuffy place to work and said, you know, I'm my talents are better served elsewhere. Um, but there's a lot of people who who are incredibly talented, who want to make an impact, who are mission driven, who now that those programs exist, now that they can choose between, you know, doing the similar work or, you know, work related to, uh, I don't know, a marketing company or marketing automation. They can work, go work at, at Facebook. They now have the ability to use those skills at Army Futures Command or Softworks at their data laboratories and have a much bigger impact. So I'm seeing, yeah, the pendulum swift, but it's not just because, you know, the government suddenly said, hey, we need to invest and bring in automation it's because what the government's really done is said we need to find ways to bring in people back into government service in and into the national security apparatus and of course those people bring skill sets but they also bring network and differentiated points of views around how and in what way we should be approaching these different problems and i think that's been the most important um set of innovations uh over the last few years when it comes to purely uh, government work has been this shift and focus on bringing highly talented technologists and folks around that space in in either into uniform or into staff-based positions. That's really interesting. I think this is a thread that's been running through this conversation, really, is that 
you know when you when we talk about innovation i think a lot of people just think about the technology and they don't actually think about the people side the skill side that requires that there is that is required to build out the technology that to and to apply it to implement those solutions effectively and i think probably that's where organizations probably assume they can buy in innovation or you know yeah. buy the latest technology or whatever and then that's it that's that box ticked you know they don't yeah. have to worry about it whereas i think it is much more about the people from what you've been talking about throughout this uh, throughout this discussion it, it completely is you know when i uh coming on jane's as you know the global head of innovation my first asks are around people both cross-functionally within the organization as well as externally of people who who I want to to bring into the James fold. And that's always been the case. This, it was similar when I was with the Defense Innovation Unit. It was similar when I was um, in startups. It requires a set of capabilities, differentiated point of views, and cross-functional um, folks all within that spirit of core. You know, we need to all be pushing, rowing in the right direction, to use the, the, uh, the aphorism, but um it does always come down to the people that you have and if you view innovation as an acquisition strategy or innovation as a um a technology strategy um then then i think you you won't succeed um and also you will waste a lot of money in the process have you um have you ever come across thomas barnett no i can't say uh, he has a he has a fantastic ted talk albeit 15 years old now which I, i'm amazed that it's it's aged this well, but it talks about let's let's rethink America's military strategy. Um, oh, I and want to listen to this. It is it is a fantastic talk. He he talks about basically splitting the American military into um, a, a warfighting force and a sys admin force. Um, and one of his wow. arguments was was really simply about what were the tasks that young corporals and sergeants were being asked to do in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well. They were asked to manage a city's water facilities and yep. electricity supplies. They're building, they're using chat functions to to talk to each other about how to do this. I think, in my own personal opinion of it, is that a, a lot of failed innovation is is innovation that's being pushed ahead of its time. You know, it's, there's no point pushing flying cars when there's no infrastructure to manage three-dimensional traffic or traffic in a three-dimensional space it's just it's a great idea everybody would love a three-dimension a flying car but it's ahead of its time a lot of his discussion or a lot of his talk is about how you know the sorts of things that they're being asked to do are ahead of their time and i think when we not to sound ageist at all the idea that the longer you're in a role the better you get at it the more experience you've got the more you specialize in that role the younger mm-hmm. you are, the more you've got the breadth because you haven't had the yep. time yet to to specialize, to get senior enough that you have specialized in that. And so you find people who are innovating are really looking for different ways to do things that that could be done if there was a structure there. Innovation is just trying to find a different route to that. I think a lot of the innovation that we're seeing, certainly from from the things that I've been exposed to at Jane's, is is stuff that you think, well, that should have happened. Why hasn't it happened already? was because it's a little bit ahead of its time. We're trying to do things that all things being equal would have been established ways of working five years ago, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. but the technology isn't mature enough. The individuals who are uh, who are senior now are individuals that have grown up trying to innovate and understand how to code and played around with it at school and in their spare time, whereas 20 years ago, those individuals didn't have that opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. not a slide against them. It's a different skill set. It's a it's a horizontal skill set as opposed to a vertical deep subject skill set. Yeah. But maybe that goes some way to describing why innovation happens in the ways we've described it during this conversation. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm definitely going to listen to that TED talk, by the way. Oh, I mean, it's, I it's think- also very, very funny. I like military strategists who don't take themselves too seriously. Well, he starts the conversation with everybody else's job at the Pentagon is to think about war in the context of war. His job is to think about war in the context of peace. And that's mm. a very different mindset. And so immediately he's got an innovative perspective of how he's thinking about how a military should function and the sorts of things it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I think that that touches on something really interesting as well, which is innovation. It it comes in. There's no prescription for successful innovation and successful innovation isn't just the right people it's not just the right operations it's 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 sometimes the right frame of reference it's sometimes just a change of view of of taking something and um i know the the innovation consultancy fahrenheit 212 calls it um the spatula approach you take something and you flip it over and you re-examine it from the other side it's it's and that's really and that's kind of what what you're talking about you know let's think about war in the context of peace or the military in the context of peace that's taking it and just flipping it and it can be as simple as that now what you do with that obviously and how to uh codify or operationalize that that innovative thinking obviously becomes the 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 second challenge but innovations can be as simple as that, as simply as a, as a change of view. And ensure, and this does get back to the theme, which is you want the right people who are empowered to think that way. And you want to give them the opportunity to, to share that view, even if you disagree with them or even if it ultimately goes nowhere. Being able to, to have that, I think, matters. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I've got a lot out of this conversation, guys. This has been really interesting and something we can definitely revisit in the future. And um, Davey, I know you've got a, a, a sort of specialism in, in AI and, and a lot of done. I've done a lot of work on how to hack AI, AI etc. So it'd be great to have you back on to the podcast to talk about that in a, in a while as well. And um, I'm sure there's lots more topics we can delve into, guys. Yeah, there's a ton more to discuss. So looking forward to the next one. Excellent. That's Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Carl, as well for you know chipping oh, in with, thanks with for having me on. Some of those, some of those, uh, those stories and anecdotes, which um, brought back memories for me too. <laughs> well, you can you can always count on me from a te- for a tangential opinion, can't you? <laughs> that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's 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 my disruptive innovation piece. Awesome. <laughs> I like Let's turn everything 180 degrees and see if it works better that way. <laughs> Thanks Great. so much, everyone. Speak Talk to you soon. soon. Take care. <laughs>